Välkomna till köksbordet i Vasastan och ett ovanligt podcastprogram och jag säger hej Johan Andreasson. Känner du? Hej CG Karlsson. Hej, jo det här ja. är ovanligt menar du för att vi har inte de här klamrarna på den gröna filten på ditt köksbord, de som liksom normalt ska hålla fast den. Det här är ju järvt, vi har ju för första gången låtit bli att ha dem så den kan ju åka av. Duken ligger så att säga fritt, den är barbacka eller vad man ska säga. Ja. Nej, ja, det är bara en av ovanligheterna. Den andra ovanligheten är att vi gör en Witt Stillman-special den här veckan. Alltså regissören Witt Stillman har vi intervjuat alla tre tillsammans. Så att han har full kubbning med oss tre. Och det är första gången vi gör en sån sak. Och det var ju väldigt kul. Och det är ju för att vi alla tre är väldigt förtjusta i Witt Stillmans filmer. Ibland gnabbas vi ju här i podden. Mm. Jag och Johan, eller ja, Johan ofta. Era aggressioner är ju legendariska. Ja, men men Witt Stillman, han har lyckats med konststycket att förena oss helt och hållet. Ja. Man kan väl säga sådär, vi älskar hans filmer. Och Witt Stillman då, han är ju lite, om man inte känner till honom så ska man säga att han är ganska sparsmakad. Han har inte gjort så många filmer. Han har gjort fem långfilmer som har visats på bio. Han gjorde debut med Dundre Brak 1990 med Metropolitan och då jämfördes han med Woody Allen vilket de jämförelserna har lite grann upphört för att han har liksom sin egen genre men det utspelas på Manhattan men det är bland protestantisk överklass men inte nödvändigtvis så rik överklass folk som har haft pengar i likhet med Witt Stillmans ja, egen han, familj. Ja, han kallar det väl själv för dömd överklass eller överklass på väg mot sin undergång. Alltså, vilket får mig att tänka på Evelyn Waugh's en förlorad värld. Det är en bra parallell tycker jag. Han är, har mycket gemensamt kan jag tycka med Evelyn Waugh. De tre filmer som vi kommer att koncentrera oss på det är Metropolitan debuten som snart kommer in ny release i Sverige. Barcelona, film nummer två och så The Last Days of Disco och de här tre filmerna tillsammans kallas ibland för Witt Stillmans trilogi Dock inte av Witt Stillman själv som vi kommer att märka. Han gillar inte den titeln. Har vi sagt var vi intervjuade honom? Mm. Nej, och vi intervjuar då Witt Stillman på Bio Capital och det kommer ni att märka att det är mycket bättre ljud än här vid köksbordet. Det är bättre <laughs> ja. akustik helt enkelt I, I biografen. Vi hade det väldigt trevligt där vi satt och, och skrockade under begränsad tid så att vi hade gärna suttit och fortsatt prata. Vi hann ju då inte prata om hans ytterligare två filmer som dels Love and Friendship, Jane Austen-filmatisering och hans lite goofy film Damses in Distress. Alltså, jag gillar alla hans filmer som jag har sagt, men jag tycker det är hans roligaste film, det är hans knasigaste. Jag tycker den är fruktansvärt kul och jag tycker den är väldigt underskattad. Jag kan inte förstå att inte fler människor tycker... Den fick ju sådär lite halvjummet mottagande. Halvjummet till negativ skulle jag säga, ja. men du och jag såg den tillsammans på, i någon slags filmfestivalsammanhang eller på Malmö filmdagar. Och jag kommer att jag var med på tåget från första början. Jag tror att det, med åren kommer den att bli en klassiker. Jag tror att vad folk har svårt att ta till sig hos Damsens Distress det är att i de här tre filmen han är mest känd för, framförallt Metropolitan så finns ett väldigt starkt vemodigt drag mm. det här dömda. Medan Damsels in Distress är ju bara, det är ju som en 30-tals musikal, alltså ja. den är bara underbart trams. Och det har alltid svårt att fånga kritikerna första rundan. Mm. Ja, och sen en annan sak som skiljer den från de tre, de, hans tre första filmer är ju väldigt starkt självgeografiskt att det handlar mm. om tre olika skeden i hans eget liv mm. och, och det här är så att säga ren fiktion. Så att jag kan föreställa mig att, för, alltså jag tycker också att den är väldigt kul, men jag kan också förstå 
att de som gillar hans tre första filmer kände sig smula förvirrade när de såg Damsels in Distress. Det var nog jag till en början. Sen mm. kunde jag inte sluta skratta. Ja, för den är väldigt rolig. Och det är så många. Och Greta Gerwig som, ja. som man ju gillar i princip alltid. Och hon mm. är bara underbar. Och det, ja, den är bara så Men det är svårt kul. när en regissör med en stark profil tar sig an någonting nytt. Alltså mm. om man tar Ingmar Bergman och Tarkovsky och de här, alltså <laughs> ja. de, de höll sig rätt mycket till varumärket. Ja. De, de gav kritiker vad de förväntade sig nästan varje gång. Och det, då får man också ett väntat mottagande. Det är min teori i alla fall. Men nu ska vi bege oss till biograf Capital och vi sitter och ugglar i halvmörkret, dunklet och pratar med Witt Stillman. So, Mr. Witt Stillman, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your three first movies. I don't know how you feel about this. They're sometimes called the Yuppie Trilogy. Is that something you approve of? No. Uh, <laughs> we call them the Doomed Bourgeois in Love Trilogy. Ah. Oh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so, Doomed Bourgeois in Love was a bit the ad line for uh, Metropolitan. It was my ad line for it, but the distributor in America changed it to um, finally a film about the downwardly mobile. Um, (laughs) But I think in Europe it went out as doomed bourgeois in love. Oh, that's quite romantic. Yeah. Yes. Let's start with Metropolitan, a story about upper class youth and... Well, well, well. You don't agree? Well, there are people participating in in upper class tradition. Okay. But what their actual formation is, we don't know necessarily. There's this gang going to debutante balls. A rat pack. The rat pack during Christmas <laughs> yeah. week. And an outsider becomes part of the gang. Yes. And the story the takes pack. off. The pack. So how autobiographical is Metropolitan? Totally. <laughs> um, well, I didn't live on the west side. I lived on Madison Avenue, but it felt like the west side. So I think that it's good when you're writing to be able to go back 15 years, sort of hazy memory of things, and particularly of times that seem very dramatic or or interesting dramatically in some way. And so for me, that was this Christmas holiday of the first year of university when all this was going on. Are there parts of you in all of the guys? I mean, like Tom and Nick and Charlie, or are you mostly Tom or... Well, finally, um, there are four identification characters uh, in the movie. It started out being the Tom Townsend's movie, the outsider character, the kind of conventional film, outsider, joining a group character. What's his name again? Tom Townsend. No, I think it was something else. No, it's Tom Townsend, I'm sure. It looks familiar. He's the guy that was sitting at the table behind ours without talking to anyone all evening. Then outside, he got the cab that we were trying to flag down. But he insisted that we take it. So Nick insisted that he come along too so that there should be no ill feeling. And then I saw that his situation wasn't very um, sympathetic. That really it was the Audrey female character who um, was in the sympathetic position in the movie because she knew sort of she saw the truth while he was still dealing with lots of illusions. And um, then there are two other characters who emerge as being really important, and they're identification characters too. There's one who's sort of the sociologist of doom, that their <laughs> class is doomed, and has a lot of sociological observations. I think that, that, that we are all, in a sense, doomed. 
What are you talking about? Downward social mobility. I've, we hear a lot about the great social mobility in America with the focus usually on the, on the comparative ease of moving upwards. What's less discussed is how easy it is to, to go down. And I think that's the, the direction that we're all heading in. And then there is sort of the live wire character, the catalyst, uh, the Nick Smith character, who is sort of strangely funny, and although he sort of poses as the most snobbish um, and ridiculous character in that sense, he actually is quite kind to the outsider character. So um, you get a kind of warmth uh, in the film that might not be there ordinarily. Yeah, because he's uh, the one who really includes other yes. people in, in the group. He takes yes. them in. Yes, I think that's a, a nice thing in that character. And it's somewhat um, it's somewhat based on, on real people and how real people act. Thanks a lot, but actually I'm not planning to go to any more dances. You weren't. Well, I strongly advise you to change your mind. Is it that your resources are limited? This is about the only economical social life you're going to find in New York. Music, drinks, entertainment, hot, nutritious meals, all at no expense to you. Basically, all you need is one suit of evening clothes and a tailcoat. Dances are either a white tie or black tie, so you only need two ties. Yeah, the actor playing Nick, Chris Eigerman, he's in all of these three movies and playing three different characters, but they have a lot in common. They're all sort of fabulists. They're making stuff up. Yes, There is sort of the Chris Eigerman character in the films, and it's not just a male character, it's also a female character. So Kate Beckinsale generally takes over a version Mm. of the Chris Eigerman character Mm. in in other films. And then Greta Gerwig in Damsels in Distress, we're not supposed to talk about that, you told me (laughs) I couldn't talk about those films. But Mm. So it's something I like writing, I suppose. I, I suppose it's the way I'd like to be myself. And I always assume I'm not like that, but occasionally someone says, actually, you are a little bit like that. (laughs) So it's a very good character, dramatically and in comedy, that kind of character. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly the one driving the the comedy in Metropolitan. I was sort of worried, actually, you know, rewatching Metropolitan, I realized you never really get to know what happens to Nick. The last thing we we hear from him is that he's worried about getting poisoned (laughs) by his stepmother, and then we don't get to know what happened. no. Now, Do you know? <laughs> that's one of the things uh, I think, you know, when people are finding something to criticize in a movie, one critic complained about that, but he revised his opinion 20 years later. Hmm. So I, I love critics who, when they're negative the first time, have the courage to change their mind later. Um, upwards, not downwards. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not exactly complaining. I'm, I'm just a no, bit worried. No, no, it's, yeah. it's true. I, I had this experience actually when we did the film uh, Last Days of Disco and we introduced Robert Sean Leonard as the Tom character in that film and he's going to be sort of a significant character and then he doesn't appear anymore after he does dastardly deeds with Chloe Sevigny. And, you know, one person seeing a rough cut put in their questionnaire, what happened to Tom? (laughs) And I thought this was ridiculous because he's obviously not about that character. And he just was in the beginning of the film and not in the end. And and we don't have to deal with what happened to Tom. And But then I mentioned this to the people backing the film at Castle Rock. And they said, yeah, what did happen to Tom? (laughs) So they thought it was a problem. And it's one of the problems in cinema, really, that in development, 
people are spending too much time on unimportant things and sort of distorting projects by asking, well, what happened to Nick? What happened to Tom? <laughs> Which we don't care. No, they talk about Nick as they try to. So they take on the Nick role. That's sort of it. It's sort of um, Charlie and Tom in Nick's absence at one point in when they're in the Horn and Hard Art Automat in, in Manhattan. They say, what would Nick do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Nick would take a cab out to to von Sloniker's in in the Hamptons, yeah, but of course all, they don't have enough money for the cabs, so they yeah, get and in trouble. That's a really funny sequence, and also that's when they really become friends. <clears throat> yes, uh, these two when when um, the more dominant guy is absent. Uh, yeah. It's it's really interesting to listen to actors um, when they get the script. Because as writers, we assume all kinds of things. So I assumed it was all very interesting and all wonderful in in the script. And then I remember the actor, Taylor Nichols, who got the part of Charlie said, oh, oh, what I like about this is finally he gets to be friends with Tom at the end, as if he didn't like the part at all, except <laughs> except for the end. But it's really true. It really um, changes things and it's important for the film. And he perceived that before I did. I want to ask you about the actors because every time I see Metropolitan, I'm struck by how extremely natural they all play and they're so unexperienced and I really can't understand how you could make this happen. Did you have a method? Because, you know, there's this British director, Mike Lee, and he he has told everyone how he first they rehearse for a long time before and then they do the movies. How did you do? Because they're so natural. Oh, thanks. Um, we um, Thanks on behalf of the actors. We do it the opposite way of Mike Lee. Generally... I don't like any rehearsal particularly, but we we do do auditions, and so normally we do readings. And the good thing about being an indie film with unknown actors generally, or or less prominent actors, or actors with less powerful agents, maybe, <laughs> is that we generally get to audition the actors in their parts extensively. And I think sometimes you can phrase that as you can get to work with them in their parts in the auditioning process. So generally, I find there's one actor who is the character. You find this actor, and it's it's wonderful. And it sort of horrifies me, the Hollywood way of casting films, where you just look at lists of names and make offers to the star names and see who you can get, who's the most important person we can get, whether they're really suitable to the role or not. And so the actors already showed that they could do what, what was desired. And they were very natural. They were very close to the characters in age, but not in background. Um, so the actress who plays Audrey, Carolyn Farina, she came from sort of the John Travolta neighborhood from um, Saturday Night Fever in Queens. And, oh, wow. And she, she sort of had her neighborhood accent, and she was doing another accent. And <clears throat> at one point, an actor was playing with her, and... She, she, this actor was a little bit nasty and she slipped in her accent and he laughed and it really annoyed me because he had a bit of an accent too from, mm-hmm. you know, from elsewhere. And, um, I guess it's nervous laughter that you shouldn't take into consideration, but they, um, were incredibly natural. And I think it's one of the tragedies of the film business and many businesses where people who are very good at something don't really get to do what they're good at because the industry doesn't annoy them and some people say that the reason why the cast didn't profit from the film is that people thought they were real people from this milieu 
who were just helping me out to do the film, which is an absurd idea. Yeah. Also, some people said crazy things that I, I hadn't understood before. One casting director came up after the first screening at the Sundance Film Festival, which is our sort of first um, debutante uh, screening, a uh, really nice, successful screening. And she said, oh, you're so brave with that casting. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, having a redhead as a protagonist. And I didn't know <laughs> that an actor with red hair you know, could not be the protagonist of a story. And now I know. Huh. It's a deadly so I've scene. Never, I've never used another redhead as a protagonist because I learned the lesson. Yeah, but <clears throat> has it been a problem for some of your actors since they seem so natural in their parts that they get so connected with that part that it's difficult for them to get roles in, in other films? Chris Eigenman, I think it really bothered Chris Eigenman because mm. he's not really like that character and I think he felt it was something sort of alien and he that's what everyone wanted him to play. Huh. And then he became more interested in directing, so now he he directs rather than acts more. Okay. But he is perfect in that that kind of part. He he's yeah. sort of all almost uh, pissed off all the time, sort of yeah. you know on the go. He's hardly that. Oh, you mean because of his title? We're supposed to be impressed by that. On the contrary, I think the titled aristocracy are the scum of the earth. I mean, he really was pissed off in Barcelona because he was giving up smoking then and, <laughs> okay. um, and after that shoot we joked that there should be in a contract that if you're a smoker before the shoot you have to continue smoking during the shoot um, <laughs> you, you, you have to be either a smoker or a non-smoker mm-hmm. you can't give up smoking right before the shoot <laughs> that's a good rule <laughs> Yeah. So uh, another thing that's also uh, every time I see Metropolitan uh, that I think about is it's so beautiful and it looks expensive. I, if you see what I mean, the the, yes. pr- the, the production value yes. looks more expensive than I have come to understand that yes. it, it, it's not. You could borrow like uh, yes. apartments from people you knew. Uh, yes. Well, you know, this is sort of the tragedy of cinema. What makes cinema really expensive is if you have to re- recreate things from scratch that, that don't exist. This was sort of the trick, the idea, the inspiration for the subject matter. That with I had $50,000 to start with, so that's what I thought I had to make the film with entirely. And um, I, I started writing, what can I write that'll... I can shoot for $50,000 that'll look like something, that'll look kind of beautiful or interesting. And I thought, well, you know, young people in these anachronistic outfits in some beautiful living room, that that really could look like something. And we could just have one living room with different after parties. And then I learned um, in in low-budget production in New York that for a $4,000 insurance policy, you could get... permits to shoot anywhere in the streets of Manhattan. So I started writing scenes on the streets of Manhattan. And then I started writing scenes to do in different sort of emblematic locations like St. Thomas Church, Christmas Service, the um, Horn and Hard Art Automat. And um, what I found was, I mean, the the production manager initially turned us down um, doing the film, but I saw that he was just the right guy to do it. So I pleaded with him to do the film, which normally is a mistake. Normally, if people don't want to do something, let them not do it because they become a problem later. But in this case, he had particular concerns, which when I allayed those two concerns, he, he did the film and he was the right person for it. But one of his two concerns was that I had to get all the locations because 
he said, to do it at this budget level, you really have to get locations where people want to be nice to you, whether they're your friends or people who for some reason or other will say yes. And what I found was that very often I'd hear that something wasn't available to us. And I said, well, that just doesn't seem right. I will go and ask them. And generally what I found was that the locations person had framed it with specific limitations, thinking that we had specific limitations. And it's true that certain things would be more convenient to us than others. But if you just went and said, when could we shoot here? Like, we're doing this little... And we had a little spiel about the film, um, which was that it's a film that's going to be very positive about New York. New York in those days, you know, had the reputation as being crime-filled and dirty and and all, all kinds of problems. And we said, we're doing sort of this positive film about New York. And we went to the church with this this talk, and I think that helped us. The fact that this very famous church allowed us to shoot there, we could say we were we shot in St. Thomas Church, and yeah, it's a beautiful scene. The way they, I think they were turning us down because they said, "Yes, you can shoot here, um, but with no lights." And mm-hmm. I think they felt that that means we wouldn't really be able to shoot there. Okay. But with the fast film and fast lenses. Uh, the cinematographer said, "Yes, we can shoot there without lighting," and we did. Okay, I think an interesting thing with Metropolitan, both the way you shot the locations and also the way the characters look and talk is that the the story could really take place in, in any time. It could just as well be the 1950s or 60s as, as the 80s. So is, is that an intentional thing? Yes, want, it is. wanted to make it timeless. It is, because for me, mm. I mean, for me, that Christmas was the Christmas of 1969, which seems like the Woodstock era, but the Woodstock era hadn't reached this group. So... The people were really like in the film in December 1969, but by March, April of 1970, they had long hair and were taking mushrooms, you know? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And so we kind of folded that into the movie in the second week. It's a little bit 1970. What people sometimes joke about is what people call the 1960s was really the early 1970s. I had gotten into... I glimpsed the first party of that kind two or three years earlier I guess it was two years earlier my sister had been a debutante in one of those parties and she got had tickets for it the second year and I had a cousin staying with us who's very much like the Nick Smith character very funny and he and I got her escort tickets so after going to the junior version of that earlier in the evening I slipped into the um the sort of more grown-up university age party and saw him and his friends and saw the scene and that was really in the prime time of when that you know before long hair and drugs and all that came in so i got to see what that was like and people from the 1950s thought that it was sort of 1950s Mm. and people from the 1980s thought it was sort of 1980s and that was one of the good things about those outfits yeah 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 and and with the guy in 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 the top it it would some scenes almost be like the 1920s. Yes, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. that was a bit, I mean, the, the, the first germ-germ of the story was when there was a re-release of Top Hat, the wonderful Fred Astaire yeah. film. And the critic at the New York Times, Vincent Canby, wrote something in his review that people, no one dresses like this anymore, no one wears white tie. Mm-hmm. And I actually, as a young radical of a certain type, wrote a letter to the New York Times saying that, yes, people still do wear that. And I signed it, the executive director of the New York Committee to Save the White Tie. 
<laughs> was it published? It was published in the New York Times. <laughs> and and later, Vincent Canby gave us, you know, the nicest, most important review we had. So it was kind of a nice thing. About Top Hat, one thing that surprised me reviewing all these movies, all three of them, is there's a lot of dancing. It's not so surprising in Last Days of Disco, obviously, that's a given. But in the other two as well, it's almost like John Ford movies. I didn't realize there was this much dancing. Yes, it's something I really love. Because we're, we're sort of stuck with these dialogue comedies where it's mostly talking. But what can you do that's sort of cinematic and fun and interesting um, and romantic too that, that fits into them? And it is dancing. And the characters allowed to dance too. Oh yeah, the is no more ridiculous than life. There's this character Fred in Metropolitan who doesn't have a lot of lines. He's mostly asleep and drunk. Yes. <laughs> but he he wakes up. Says, I don't think it's possible to forget the cha cha. I think you're blocking it out. Ah, the cha cha. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's really one of the funniest thing in Metropolitan. Fred's reactions to what other people are doing. Yeah. Just a quick shot of him. You know, my my friend who. I mean, I really like what that actor does, Brian Leader. And he immediately lost that extra weight and became very slim and, and handsome. Because my actual friend who is like that was tall and handsome. And, and I, in casting, the, the sleepy character was always the chubby character. So mm-hmm. and, and finally I had to go with the cliche because I was the best actor for the part. But my friend, um, who I sort of based that on, came to one of the screenings and I was disconcerted because at the end he was very vague. He didn't say anything about the film. And so I, I said this to another friend. I said, well, Tony uh, didn't say anything. And they said, that's because he was sleeping. <laughs> so so he, in character. He, yeah. he, he, he tended to drink a lot. Oh. And so he came after work, having had some drinks for an 8 o'clock mm. screening. And and also famously, it's a, a film about people who read and like to read. Yes, or at least the criticism. Yeah, <laughs> that's oh, yeah. true. You don't have to read the book, Tom Townsend <laughs> said. Yeah, yeah, but he actually does read uh, at least one Jane Austen novel, yeah, I think. Yeah, it takes in, some time. It before. takes some time for yeah. him. He has to start being interested in the girl before he reads uh, the novel. Yeah. And by Jane Austen, Persuasion, and Mansfield Park. Mansfield Park? You've got to be kidding. No. But it's a notoriously bad book. Even Lionel Trilling, one of her I greatest admirers, thought that. Well, if Lionel Trilling thought that, he's an idiot. The whole story revolves around what? The, the immorality of a group of young people putting on a play. In the context of a novel, it makes perfect sense. But the context of the novel and nearly everything Jane Austen wrote is near ridiculous from today's perspective. Has it ever occurred to you that today looked at from Jane Austen's perspective would look even worse? Do you, do you agree with his... I, I know he hasn't read it when he says this, but when he, has, when he criticizes Mansfield Park... In very like he say it's uh, well I don't remember his words but it's really well it's a misreading yeah. of the Lionel Trilling essay so it's it's reading the beginning of the Lionel Trilling essay and not really reading the end of it actually oh. so not only does he not read the novels but he doesn't even read the full review <laughs> <laughs> so so Lionel Trilling does this thing at the start of that essay saying you know we today cannot you know accept the moral quandaries of Mansfield Park and we cannot accept a virtuous heroine like Fanny Price and then he goes to show how we can. Mm-hmm. But Tom didn't get that far. <laughs> and uh, I have a friend who is very literary, much more, you know, much better educated than I am. And I always thought that he would be the great novelist or, or the novelist and I would be, you know, the failure at ever finishing anything. 
and he went off in a different tangent, but he gave me so much material because he misrepresented that Lionel Trilling essay to me. And I got really angry when, when I heard about this. And then I read the Lionel Trilling essay and I saw what it really was. And so there's so many things in my films that come from this friend of mine who's very erudite, but he seems to sometimes get things the wrong way. <laughs> and it's funny because he became one of the investors in uh, Metropolitan. Oh. And so, and, and the, uh, the location in Southampton the exterior is his family house in Southampton, yeah, so he helped a lot. And what did they say about prigs in Barcelona? I, I don't mean it in a negative way. I don't mean it So speaking of Barcelona, I know that that was uh, quite a, not an easy shoot. Did uh, I tell you about that? It's really tough. Yeah. Mm. What was the most uh, difficult thing making Barcelona? Well, before we get to that, I want to get a plug in because a critic friend of ours said that the version of Barcelona on iTunes is actually very good. And because he said the version of Las Seis of Disco on iTunes should be avoided. Uh -huh. So we're going to try to see with Warners if they can get the updated, better version of Las Seis of Disco. Because if people want to see these films, I'm not sure how they're available in Sweden. And there is an inexpensive French DVD of um, of Last Days of Disco, and then also there's the wonderful Criterion editions. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, the Barcelona shoot was very tough. I think they say that you know sophomore projects, second projects, are often very difficult. And I was doing it in a different city, and I actually knew more people in the film business in Spain than in America because I had been. I started out in the film business. I wanted to get into it. I wanted to be a film writer director, but I know how to do that. So I got to be a film sales agent for selling Spanish films internationally. And I became friendly with the directors, who were also the producers in many cases. And in two cases, the directors asked me to play the stupid American character, the silly American character, El Bobo Americano, <laughs> in their films. And one of them... A low-budget film shot in New York. I had a tiny part in, but I got to really do a lot of things in the production. And so I saw how a tiny budget film could be made. And then with the other film, I actually had a significant part, and I was put up in Madrid all summer while they're shooting that, and I saw how a kind of a, a normal-sized production is made. And that was very helpful to me. And so I went to Spain to do Barcelona, but I was shooting in Barcelona, not in Madrid. In Madrid, I knew people and I would have had contacts, but Barcelona in those years didn't really have a feature film industry. The people were from television, but mostly from commercials. And so they would really get good money, but they'd work for three days or four days on things. And it became this thing where people just got so tired. And on the weekends, you know, instead of resting up, they would really live it up. And on Monday mornings, the crew was just so tired and weird. <laughs> and we just had one problem after another. Uh, um, I was surprised looking at it. It's quite a big production. There are explosions and there's this assassination yes. attempt. It, it's not die hard, but it's, uh, you, you know, know. <laughs> but still... It's hard to judge the popularity of the film when it wasn't sincerely distributed. So the film did very well in North America and did well in England also. 
and didn't really get much distribution in Europe. That's because it fell into these sort of studio deals, and it's not a, you know, I think it fell to the big company here in Sweden, and they never opened it. So I don't know how it would have been done in Europe because it's sort of a outsider's view. Yeah. And it might have been sort of not very agreeable for a European audience, the film. But in the United States, it really did well. And I think the fact that things happen in it and there's actual events <laughs> and danger and someone might die really helps it. And in trying to write the series, I've sort of had the idea that I have to have more things happening. And so when the series takes off, which I hope it will, there really is a lot of stuff happening. Your TV it, show. Cause mm. people, yeah, because people like that. And uh, I think it's interesting. And uh, occasionally it happens in life. Yeah. And one thing, <clears throat> because we, we watched uh, all three movies now very close together. And I think there's, there's a big change in, in tone of the movie from Metropolitan seems a very tender movie. And, and Barcelona is actually kind of harsh. Mm -hmm. uh, was that the circumstance of, of living abroad that was m more tension between the Americans and, and the Europeans? Yes, and I think one thing that made Barcelona more popular in North America is that a problem with Metropolitan, and particularly with Last Days of Disco, is people can feel excluded from the, the in-group. It's actually very snobbish, Last Days of Disco, because there's the whole thing of getting into the club, and the whole snobbish aspect of these exclusive nightclubs that would turn people away at the velvet rope that that is sort of an uncomfortable thing for the audience. Like, which side of the velvet rope am I? And uh, you also had a very harsh character in the Kate Beckinsale character in yeah. that. She really is harsh. Mm, yeah. And in Metropolitan, that is ameliorated by the fact that the harsh, snobbish character is being nice to the identification outsider character. So that ameliorates and softens um, that snobbery. And I think that something that made Barcelona broadly popular in the United States is that essentially the red velvet rope is Europe yeah. that we're excluded from and we're looked down mm -hmm. upon by the people on the other side of the red velvet rope. So there's a sort of a national identification with being excluded from the European club. Yeah, maybe we should add that Barcelona is about two cousins, Ted yes. and Fred, Americans. One living in Barcelona, working in sales, and he's visited by his cousin, who's a military man. And they both feel strongly that Americans are misrepresented in Europe. Yes. Jenkins, fora. Fora. Jesus, what was that all about? What does Fancha mean? It's slang for fascist. Fascist? Come on, don't, don't worry. They, they call everyone that. I mean, you comb your hair, or you wear a coat and tie, you're Fancha. A military uniform? Definitely Fancha. Well, so Fancha is something good then. Because if they were referring to the political movement Benito Mussolini led, I'd be really offended. Men wearing this uniform died ridding Europe of fascism. You know, the, the same actors, their characters in Metropolitan are sort of editorializing, and they continue to do so yes. here. So do you still feel like that? Would you write it the same way today? No, um, I wouldn't. Um, it's, it's, it's a film where I've really changed my perspective because I was brought to Spain as a, a spouse. So I was sort of you know, caught there in a situation and a time when pr things were particularly ideologically divided. It was before Spain joined NATO. It's sort of, it's set in the 1980s when there's a big um, debate about NATO. And and I think the, the American situation in the world was, was being misrepresented. And, and Spain, you know, was maybe staying out of these institutions and being very influenced by propaganda from the communist bloc. 
And the situation now has changed really entirely. And also my situation has changed in that I'm in, I'm in France voluntarily and I'm more, I spend much more time and energy explaining and defending the French point of view to Americans than I do vice versa. So my situation has really changed in that sense. So now you're making your TV show where you made your t television pilot, The Cosmopolitans. Yes. So that's uh, a similar situation. It's Americans in Europe. Yes. So you're sort of redoing that. <clears throat> I mean, that was what I was kind of stuck with in the, f in the first episode. And that, I think, again, it's this problem when you're given sort of projects f by other people before you make it your own. So there was the head of um, Amazon Studios who wanted to do something in, in Paris. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea. And he had a script that he wanted me to rewrite and direct. And I, I saw the script and said, well, listen, I have stories from Paris. I mean, I felt it was a tourist script, you know, that mm -hmm. someone had been in Paris for a week and did all the cliches. And you know, I, they're real things that you could talk about and real characters. But it, sort of the brief was to do, you know, Americans or expatriates in Paris. And I established those characters, and while I was establishing them and shooting the thing, I said, well, I have this other project I've always wanted to do of sort of a new sort of world of, of knights who are fighting for the good, you know, sort of mm. modern Zorros. Huh? And, and I was saying, I couldn't get that project off the ground, but these actors and these characters could kind of cross the street and do that. And mm. so the continuation of the Cosmopolitans really will be that story, not, oh, we're Americans in Paris kind of stuff, which doesn't really interest me at all. Hi, honey. It's me. I went to see the doctor today because ever since you've been gone, I had a pain deep down inside. He says there's nothing really wrong with me. I'm just missing my man. So, honey, Can I ask about uh, the last days of disco? Because I know that you have said, which I understand, that today that so that wonderful soundtrack would be impossible. It would be too expensive if you would yes. make the movie today, of course, because of the evolution of the music industry. But the beginning is uh, Carol Douglas' Doctor's Orders. Yes. And then directly it's uh, Let's All Chant, and then it's He's the Greatest Dancer. And I think it's a sort of perfect way of taking us into the feeling and was it important for you to start with exactly that song or and then come the the, the second one or i mean like did you think a lot about okay which one to start with we did think a lot about it um i particularly loved um doctor's orders um so what i like in disco is the combination of soul music and disco music and dance music and it's the two together so so generally the preferred music comes out of that tradition and the carol douglas um song was one of those songs that sort of people love but it wasn't on the automatic playlist it wasn't the famous disco song but a beloved one and it, it was very soulful and it sort of was female and romantic And what we did there, actually, is a wonderful job by the composer, Mark Suazo, that I've worked with in all my projects. He did a symphonic bridge, so we got the rights to both use the song and also to use the music from the song. So it is the first part is the record, 
and then we go into a long sequence where it's the melody done symphonically, and then we come back to the record. And um, I couldn't remember exactly what the other songs were after that. But one of the reasons setting the film in the early 80s is to try to include all the music, dance music from that period, including late things. So one of the latest things is Dolce Vita, which was sort of known in, in, in Europe and later, not really known in the United States, that I could put that in. And it sort of fell very much at the end of the movie in the decadent moment of the police raid. Des? Des? Des, open up. I didn't let him in, Des. He got by me. Jesus Christ, are you out of your mind? It's about to start. Get rid of all your gifts and anything else you might have. And of Des being found in flagrante with the Tiger Lady. But one of the sort of challenges was including the Harold Melvin and Blue Notes music, which I consider the beginning of disco, but other people would consider it sort of, you know, late Philly sound soul. We should add then that The Last Days of Disco, that's a story about two female friends uh, or frenemies, maybe, that sort of... Yes up for discussion Charlotte, roommates roommates <laughs> Charlotte and Alice I was going to ask about the they, they rent this apartment this railroad apartment which, railroad flat yeah yeah. It, it plays a big part in the movie have you ever lived in one of course <laughs> <laughs> I dated a girl in one it's very awkward <laughs> yeah. so, so the problem with these these are tenements built in the east side of Manhattan and it's funny because you know now sort of in the period of the movie the upper east side was considered the sort of preppy yuppie bourgeois neighborhood but it wasn't really built that way these were built as sort of workers flats and low-income housing of the period and the railroad flat was called that because it was like a train where you had to walk through the different cars the different rooms to get there there were no hallways except an exterior hallway bathroom is back here at this end the kitchen So to get to the bathroom from the living room, you have to clomp through both bedrooms? Well, there are two outside doors. So in theory, you can use the exterior hall to go between the kitchen and the living room. And so one of the themes of the movie is sort of the problem when there are no hallways. (laughs) Uh, another thing I really like in Lost Days of Disco is how you depict the, the publishing business. Is, is that also from your own experience? Uh, yes. I was recently um, an essayist who I have problems with cited our film as being inaccurate version of publishing. And it was her herself as being inaccurate because she claimed that becoming an associate editor was, it was just a nothing title and all that. And it's funny because she was working at a publishing house that we considered ridiculous title inflation. They were overpaid and they had title inflation. And we were very proud of the fact that um, we were underpaid and had no title inflation. I mean, if there had been anything adversely portrayed, it could have been a lawsuit because it was exactly, exactly my experience at Doubleday in that period. And uh, fortunately, we had a real budget <clears throat> on Last Days of Disco, so we were able to to book space that looked exactly like sort of what it looked like. Yeah, it and seems ex- extremely real. So it was an empty floor in an office building, and the art department was able to sort of create the corridors and, and the spaces that were just identical to what I lived through. Yeah, and, and also the way that people interact and the, the meetings and also the, the recipe for a bestseller. Uh, Before you can become an associate editor, you have to have a bestseller. How can you be sure you'll get a bestseller? You cannot. 
But what if you don't find one? You have to. Show them the outline. You might want to see this. It's the Scott Meredith bestseller outline. Create sympathetic characters with whom readers identify, give them problems, make these problems big. Can I photocopy this? Yes, but I need it back. I'd like a copy too. That stuff is such crap. This does describe a lot of bestsellers. It's true. It's completely formulaic. Of course it's formulaic. It's a formula. It was just exactly as it was. And people from Doubleday would recognize it. There was the manuscript room with the lady with the Eastern European accent. <laughs> and uh, it was all the same thing. That was one of the things where I, I'm not sure if I was entirely happy with the casting people because I said, well, let's get an Eastern European to play the Eastern European. And they said, oh, no, this is a wonderful theater actress. She'll do any accent, blah, blah, blah. But um, <clears throat> I'm really, really in favor of finding the actual person when you can. And, and why not give an Eastern European actor a chance? Can I ask you about the, this conversation about la- the Lady on the Tramp in, in the in Last Days of Disco? I think, to me, it's one of the funniest scenes in, in modern cinema, really. I, I, I just love it. When we were seeing it now, we were just laughing <laughs> yeah. together. It's so funny. The other day, I took my niece, who's seven, to see the Disney movie, Lady on the Tramp. She loved it. It was so cute. I'm beginning to fall in love with the whole idea of having kids. I hate that movie. What? So tacky. Not to mention depressing. This sweet movie about cute cartoon dogs you found depressing? There is something depressing about it, and it's not really about dogs. Except for some superficial bow-wow stuff at the start. The dogs all represent human types, which is where it gets into real trouble. <clears throat> Lady, the ostensible protagonist. When you made, when you wrote that, how did you get the idea? Because it's so. Yeah. Well, I think I always was annoyed um, by this thing in in movies where the delinquent male character is the sympathetic hero, and supposedly he's going to change his spots through love and marriage or whatever. The insipid tramp, the love interest is a smarmy braggart of the most obnoxious kind, an oily jailbird out for a piece of tail or whatever he can get. Oh, come on. No, he's a self-confessed chicken thief and all-around sleazeball. What's the function of a film of this kind? Essentially, it's a primer on love and marriage directed at very young people, imprinting on their little psyches the idea that smooth-talking delinquents recently escaped from the local pound are a good match for nice girls from sheltered homes. When in 10 years the icky human version of Tramp shows up around the house, their hormones will be racing and no one will understand why. Films like this program women to adore jerks. God, you're nuts. One reason that there's so much about Disney films in Last Days of Disco is we have to talk about something in the conversation. There has to be a subject matter and it's really important that it be a subject matter that a lot of people know about. And what things do most people in the world who might go to see a movie of this kind know about? It's Disney films. And so there are many Disney subjects in this movie. And um, it just seemed to work really well with the characters in the film. And it sort of just kept going and going when I was writing it and developing and developing. So it was very lucky. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's yeah. such a long scene, and I love that, that you have the courage to not, you know, okay, maybe it's enough. No, it's not enough. It just gets funnier and funnier, I yeah. think. Yeah, and also the, the other Disney reference, I think the biggest laugh for me is when Chloe Savigny <laughs> says she, she finds Uncle Scrooge really sexy. What's this? Um, I collect original edition Scrooge McDuck comics. Um, no, it sounds a little odd. Not at all. This is original artwork by Carl Barks, who created the Uncle Scrooge comics. He's considered a bit of a genius. 
sexy about Scrooge McDuck. You really think so? Love Uncle Scrooge. Yeah. And then you also, because I think you remember by name Carl Barks, the Disney artist, who I guess is, is not an, uh, he's very well known in Sweden, but uh, I, I don't think he's a household name in, in the US. Well, uh, he is in my family because we were obsessed with Uncle Scrooge. Huh. And I was thinking, why did we love Uncle Scrooge? We came from a family that considered itself, you know, formerly rich. And so what character in sort of youth literature is identifying as a rich person, mm. Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> yeah. So we loved Uncle Scrooge comic books. Mm. And my sister, the, the, we actually had the you know first edition Uncle Scrooge comic books there in the scene. They were my sister's collection. Ah. And she, you know, has the big Carl Barks art book. Mm. And, uh, you know, on the wall we had to trick something else so we don't get into Disney copyrights. But we really had a Karl Barks cult in, in our family that we were able to uh, exploit there. But the thing is to take, you know, two themes and put them together. So we have the Disney theme and we also have this seduction theme, the sort of bad advice she gets from, from Charlotte, from mm. the Kate Beckinsale character. <laughs> You're saying this for my benefit? You're a good conversationalist, but there's something of the kindergarten teacher about you. It's really nice, but the guys you like also tend to be on the ethereal side and get pretty far away from any kind of physicality. This is going to sound dumb, but it really works. Whenever you can, throw the word sexy into your conversation. It's kind of a signal. Like, um, there's something really sexy about strobe lights. Or, uh, this fabric is so sexy. Yeah, it is. And then how people use bad advice. You know, if it's, if it's something's not in someone's nature and they get advice from someone else that goes against their nature, they're going to get in real trouble mm. and get all kinds of venereal diseases. <laughs> yeah. This is supposed to be good for cigarette mouth. Do you smoke? When I drink or go out at night, I usually smoke. I live dangerously on the edge. I'm no kindergarten teacher. A big part of the movie, of course, is set at the disco. And part of it is behind the scenes, because the Chris Eigerman character, Des, actually works at the disco. Is that something that you researched afterwards for the movie, or did you actually have any insight into the workings when it, as it happened? Well, it's kind of really fortunate, because I was holed up in, in a, a flat that I rented just to try to finish the script in time for a deadline on delivering the script. <clears throat> And I was sent by Vogue magazine a copy of Anthony Hayden Guest's history of Studio 54 right when I was trying to finish it and said this is opportune and so I was reading about the history of what happened with the crackdown on the club for tax evasion and they actually had money you know stashed in all kinds of there's a documentary out about yeah, it yeah. we've, we've seen, seen that it. so it's and they, it's they quite had good. they yeah. had bags of mm -hmm. cash stashed mm -hmm. everywhere just like in our movie huh. so that gave me the sort of storyline for the end of the movie so i researched though i did talk to people i had a friend um our in our group there was one guy who was a bit the nick smith social character but he was also coming out as gay after university and he would go to suit for a lot and there he became involved with a fellow 
who had been the florist for Studio 54, who became the, the decorator for Studio 54. So they do a different party theme every night. And his friend was doing that decoration and he was there, you know, dancing and they became a couple. And he actually is in the film. I got a lot, all kinds of different friends to kind of who had been regulars to be there. Mm-hmm. So I would ask him about things about the, you know, he knew about the inner workings of the club. So I had different sources who would talk about that. Yeah. yeah. And w- when you say that you were writing on a deadline, was there t- pressure on you to get your film out before the, the 54 movie? At the same time, we heard about this competing film. And actually, one of the people working, possibly as one of our producers, was asked to work on that too. And when Castrock heard that one of our people was going to work on the competing, they were really upset about the competing film. And there became tons of pressure to come out before the competing film. And a lawyer for Miramax that was doing the competing film was the father of a child in my daughter's nursery school class or kindergarten class. And so every day when I'd go to kindergarten, I'd try to find out what was happening in that movie. <laughs> and so uh, I kept hearing that they were canceling that project, and I was relieved. And then it was back on. It was constantly canceled back on. And then Castrock really... There's so many stories of the second film on a subject failing, and only the first film being accepted, that we were under terrible pressure to go early. And so... I think there are problems with the film where we were being pushed, pushed, pushed to go early. So the casting wasn't really finished before we started shooting. And maybe the script wasn't finished either. And in the editing, I worked... By accident, I ended up with two editors. So we edited every day. The only day I took off in the whole long editing period was Christmas Day. I worked every day on editing. And I think the film could have been better if there hadn't been that pressure in the sense that we did some really stupid little things to make something if, if everyone's saying something should be shorter how do you cut into the shortness and the worst way to cut into the shortness is to take tiny bits of frames off the edges of sequences you really should lop into actual material and take it out don't just tighten everything up because it actually makes it seem longer mm-hmm. and and more awkward still to me the <laughs> The movie doesn't seem long. I, th- I think actually it's your uh, funniest movie. So it has, to me, it has the most laughs in it of any of your films. So. Oh, that's good. I mean, I think that if an audience relaxes into it, it can work well that way. But if you get a conventional, impatient audience, they might react negatively to it. Ah. One last question just about your your own Studio 54 experience, because it's it's a personal movie. So could, could you tell us something about that? I was terrified of of going to that place because it just sounded very intimidating. And the girl I was going out with, and she really wanted to go, and it was right at the beginning. And so we went too early. I mean, we were probably one of the first people to show up, and we we managed to get in. She was very pretty, so I guess she got us in. Mm-hmm. And also, I had this you know strange relationship with my father and the one thing he did that was really nice is he gave me a english tailored suit so i had this beautiful blue suit and i i think the blue suit was my ticket into studio 54 um because people say oh that looks really good and so i we got into studio 54 and we get into this empty nightclub first people there but it turns out we were not the first people there There was another couple there, and it was someone I knew from my boarding school (laughs) who was married to a girl from one of the old families from Boston. And so when I was belabored later that Studio 54 was just, you know, working class people and blacks and gays, 
I knew that it wasn't right because <laughs> it was very preppy. It was very so. One of the things the metropolitan crowd would say is, "Sufjan was Deb season all over again because he was sort of understood that if you went to some charity ball where you had to dress up." Let's go to see before afterwards because dressed like this, we might get in. They loved having people very overdressed. So if you're wearing white tie and tails, they let you in. You're as equivalent to a naked man painted gold. Och så var det med det. Jarovski är vårt produktionsbolag. Niklas Rumsten har redigerat. Hej då från mig, Göran och Johan och CG. Och vi hörs nästa vecka för ett helt vanligt och reguljärt Eberdal och Karlsons film-tv. Kingeling! Mm.